Welcome to an early version of the show today on this Wednesday. Today, we were very fortunate, of course, to be joined by Kelly Victory, as we always are on Wednesday. Uh, Dr. Jessica Rose comes back. She's a Canadian researcher. She has a degree in math, uh, master's in immunology. She holds a PhD in computational biology, doctoral degrees in molecular biology. Uh, she has also a degree in biochemistry, and she has been looking at uh, the various data and very concerned about adverse events for some time. She has some updated data today on contamination of the vaccines. Uh, we are also very pleased to be joined by Dr. Joseph Freeman, ER doctor, physician from Louisiana, who's been very concerned about the approval process for medication and vaccines by the uh, Federal Drug Administration, the FDA. Uh, he manages Louisiana's Urban Search and Rescue Disaster Task Force, and uh, he has led a group of physicians uh, about these major shortcomings in the FDA's recent publications, and he has some uh, recordings of his interaction with the FDA when he presented this data to them. We're going to get into that and more right after this. Our laws, as it pertain to substances, are draconian and bizarre. The psychopaths start this way. He was an alcoholic. Because of social media and pornography, PTSD, love addiction, fentanyl and heroin, ridiculous I'm a, I'm a doctor for <laughs> sake. Where the hell do you think I learned that? I'm just saying, you go to treatment before you kill people. I am a clinician. I observe things about these chemicals. Let's just deal with what's real. We used to get these calls on Loveline all the time. Educate adolescents and to prevent and to treat. If you have trouble, you can't stop and you want to help stop it, I can help. I got a lot to say. I got a lot more to say. I think everyone knows the next medical crisis could be just around the corner, whether it comes in the form of another pandemic or something much more routine like a tick bite. You and your family need to be prepared. That's where the wellness company comes in. You know the wellness company. We have their physicians on like Dr. McCullough frequently. The wellness company and their doctors are medical professionals you can trust. And their new medical emergency kits are the gold standard when it comes to keeping you safe and healthy. It's really, it's a safety net. It's an insurance policy yeah, absolutely. that you hope you're not going to need. But if you need it, you sure as heck are going to wish you had it if you need it. Be ready for anything. This medical emergency kit contains an assortment of life-saving medications, including ivermectin, z -Pak. The medical emergency kit provides a guidebook to aid in the safe use of all these life-saving medications. From anthrax to tick bites to COVID-19, the wellness company's medical emergency kit is exactly what you need to have on hand to be prepared. Rest assured, knowing that you have emergency antibiotics, antivirals, and antiparasitics on hand to help you and your family stay safe from whatever life throws at you next. Go to drdrew.com slash TWC. That is drdrew.com forward slash TWC. To get 10% off today, just click on that link. There are three reasons the central banks are dumping the U.S. dollar. Inflation, deficit spending, and our insurmountable national debt. The fact is, there is one asset that has withstood famine, wars, political and economic upheaval dating back to biblical times, gold. And you can own it in a tax shelter retirement account with the help of Birch Gold. That's right, Birch Gold will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k maybe from a previous employer, into an IRA in gold. And the best part, you don't pay a penny out of pocket. Just visit birchgold.com slash Drew for your free info kit. They'll hold your hand through the entire process. Think about this. When currencies fail, gold is a safe haven. How much more time does the dollar have? Birch Gold has an A-plus rating with Better Business Bureau and thousands of happy customers. I do not give financial advice, and previous performance is no guarantee of future performance. 
Visit birchgold.com slash Drew to get your free info kit on gold. That is B-I-R-C-H-G-O-L-D dot com slash D-R-E-W. Welcome back. As I said, we got Jessica Rose and uh, Joseph Fryman in here. I'm going to bring Jessica in here first. As I said, she's a Canadian researcher, degree in math, master's in immunology, PhD in computational biology, molecular biology, and biochemistry. And in addition to a little vaccine talk today, we're going to get an update about Maui. Please welcome Dr. Jessica Rose. There you are. Welcome back. Hi. Thanks for having me back. Pleasure to be here. You... You bet. Before we get into plasmids and all things uh, vaccine, uh, can you give us an update on what's going on with Maui? Um, probably not better than anybody. Um, I'm a little confused about what's going on there. Um, it appears as though there's there's definitely something being covered up, uh, according to what I'm hearing from locals that I know and and also don't know. That you can you can hear on social media they're talking you know into their phones about what's going on um but what i keep hearing since the beginning is that there are um children unaccounted for and some people are claiming that they were actually um stuck in their homes and perish the thought but burned and other people are saying that they're missing like i i don't know what the uh the truth behind that is but um nonetheless uh on the subject matter the, the most important things that i i think we need to address are these these events that led up to these potential deaths because if even one kid died that's too many kids to have died and people need to be held accountable so whether it be leaving the fire before it was out to put out a fire on the other side of the island to treasure the water um, to not sound the siren because it wasn't an official tsunami or because you know they're saying that the fire started due to outdated power lines etc i mean this these are all things that uh, i mean Someone needs to be held you know, accountable. That's that's well, Jessica. I I I don't know on the government side. Unfortunately, you know they have these uh, qualified immunities that uh, allow them not to learn from their mistakes, while the rest of us take profound punishment when we make mistakes. But I assure you, I spoke to a lawyer over the weekend. The lawyers are not uh, actually was actually directly involved in uh, taking action. They are not missing this opportunity, I assure you. <laughs> I assure you there is a lot going on uh, and it will, uh, and, uh, and uh, associated with those actions is a tremendous amount of um, private investigative activity, that sort of thing, you know, sort of fact finding. So, and, and also you need to recognize that these attorneys that do this sort of work need every molecule of information because they hold these people accountable to every single thing they find and that's how they optimize their return on what they're working on uh but it is it is on so i i, I don't worry everybody the the uh the legal system will have its way the government you know and with their need for uh i worry when i i saw mal i worried about our situation here in california where we don't do forestry control i used to look up in these san gabriel mountains when i was a kid and it would they were crisscrossed with fire breaks well we stopped doing that because they interfered with the the uh 
uh, immigration of a mouse. Some mouse wasn't able to get across properly. And so now, and they would refuse to do the underbrush cleaning out, which they need to do. Uh, and when there is a fire, which there will be, it will be catastrophic here in Southern California. You would think Maui would be some sort of a cautionary tale. Nope. Because government, yeah. the individuals making the decisions have qualified immunity and they never learn because of that. They have no skin in the game other than re-election, which, again, in this state, we seem to re-elect and re-elect and re-elect incompetence. But I don't know, whatever. Uh, who am I to say? Yeah, the... <laughs> The people who always seem to lose are the the, the actual people. You know what I mean? It's like of course. the, the yes, people of course. who are invested, the people who work hard, well. the people who are expected to go back to work, even though they don't have a home or they can't even go to see if there's anything left from their belongings. I mean, it's mm. uh, yeah, I hope there's some kind of justice here. I'm 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 putting all of my I, thoughts I and, think and energies into that. So. I, I think there there will be ultimately, but again, it takes time. But I, I want to get Joseph Fryman and Kelly Victor in here as soon as possible. Before we do, I'm gonna, what I'll do is I'll take a little break after we have this next topic, you and I. Give me what's going on. I, I keep hearing, what I, not rumors, but I keep reading material about plasmid contamination by the vaccines. Uh, tell, explain to people what a plasmid is, what the risk of a plasmid is, and what the evidence for this is. Okay, uh, I'll try and do this very succinctly. Kevin McKernan is a genomics expert, and he found uh, DNA in vials that he tested um, for, for some other thing. He was looking for a, a control. So this was, this was not something he set out to do. Um, DNA should not be in the vials. There should only be modified mRNA in the vials. That's the first thing. Mm -hmm. The way that the DNA got in is because the process that they're using to manufacture the modified mRNA for encapsulation in lipid nanoparticles uses uh, E. coli, um, which, are, uh, which have these circular plasmids in them that encode the spike gene. So it's, it's a method for making a lot of um, DNA for in vitro transcription to make the mRNA. So it's something that we do, but we haven't done this in the context of modified mRNA with these one methyl pseudouridines. And so what, what we're thinking happened is at the last step, when they're supposed to purify the modified mRNA out using this enzyme that eats up the DNA such that you don't have any more DNA, was that um, the DNAs didn't work on what we're calling, what you know might be hybrids. So the, the DNA might have fused to the mRNA for lack of a better way of saying it. And that enzyme might not have worked to remove these things. So basically what happened is we, well, an hypothesis is that the DNA uh, contamination in the vials that Kevin detected, and by the way, this has been reproduced in other labs, which is the way that we're supposed to do this. If, some, if somebody finds something, you have to reproduce the results. This is the most important thing in science. So this has been done, um, but this is the, 
the working hypothesis as to how this DNA actually got brought over. It got uh, mixed up in the mRNA because it wasn't properly taken out during the purification step and encapsulated in the lipid nanoparticles. So um, that's all Kevin uh, and Philip Buchholz is one of the other confirming um, uh, cancer specialists. He has his own lab as well. Separate vials, completely independent uh, investigations found very, very similar things, which is this DNA contamination. So um, there are many repercussions of this, um, of which we might be able to explain in some of the adverse events we're seeing. So that that was a long summary, but that's... <laughs> That's what's going on. Yeah, no, it's we, not got funny. It. we got it. We so, got it. So, so there's a couple of questions. I, I the one we have for, for the average person: what, what is it about the DNA that is associated with adverse events? That's sort of one topic. And then I, I was thinking about the biology of the DNA plasmids on unwinding and opening and fusing with mRNA. Do they have a theory about how that happened? Well, you have to linearize, like basically you take it out of its circular shape uh, before you yeah. do the in vitro transcription. So there's this, you know, I don't do this, so I've never done it in myself, but this is how it's done. Um, so you, you put it into its linear form. So somewhere along the line, we are hypothesizing that that's what happened. So uh mm. dna rna uh, hybrids are a thing and they create mm. these little things called r loops um which you know i, I never mind what that is but uh, these can also create problems in vivo in terms of create creating genomic instability so Geno um, genomic instability the, in human cells other human cells yeah so yeah, interfering with um, normal processing in in terms of uh, what happens genomically. So th the other thing that I've uh, heard in one of the conversations I've had with colleagues is that um, these little bits of DNA, they're 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 not circular plasmids that are being transferred. They're like little bits, and according to one of these experts these little bits more easily can integrate into the genome of humans. And the problem with that is um, well, multifold. They can actually get inserted inside very important genes. So say, say you get insertion of this little piece of DNA into an existing gene, you're gonna mess up that gene's function. So, sure. again, this is all just our line of thinking right now as to the possible ways that this could go wrong. Um, but the but back to the back to the R loops, you don't really even need that if you're interfering with DNA repair. Uh, that's sufficient to cause massive issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Ev everyone, if, if you want to know more about that, you can go to uh, the Nepet Nepetalacto newsletter that Kevin's newsletter and he wrote an article called DNA RNA hybrids are loops and nuclease resistance of the mRNA vaccines. Um, he explains this really well here and um, there is a nature paper that was published called our loop derived cytoplasmic uh, RNA DNA hybrids um, can activate an immune response. So 
basically these things are they're they're a part of like nature like it's it's not a weird thing that our loops are created the problem is that um they can accumulate and that can cause problems again kevin kevin is the one to uh to to answer these questions in more detail but all of these um okay. All of these issues and, arise and because of, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, I, I, I know also you're concerned about uh, lipid nanoparticle polysaccharide contamination and changes as well. Yeah, so that, that was another issue um, that was of concern because of this process two method of, for lack of a better way of saying it, growing up the DNA using E. coli. Um, so we we do this like it's it's not something that's like oh we're using e coli it's it, that's not the big deal the big deal is that when you use this um as part of this process you need to make sure that you don't take lipopolysaccharide which is you know it's it's a part of this e coli with you in your final product so um we always test or you know the people who test for these things test for endotoxin levels when they have a finished product to make sure that they're not exceeding some kind of accepted level, because if you inject someone with lipopolysaccharide, you're you're probably going to induce anaphylactic anaphylactic shock or septic shock. It's pretty bad. So it's interesting because um, uh, Kelly actually mentioned, you know, that she has a peg allergy, and if she got injected with these things, she she probably would go into anaphylactic shock. So it got me wondering that. Uh, because we have seen a lot of reports of anaphylaxis following injection with these things. So I'm wondering if it is, isn't partially the PEG uh, and also maybe the lipopolysaccharide. I don't know. We need to confirm all of this, but um, th these are the hypotheticals that could potentially go wrong. And this is why we, we measure these things. Not, not we, you know, me and my colleagues, but the people who test for uh, contaminants before they inject things into people, for example, like you, you have to do this as part of good manufacturing practices and responsibility and all that stuff. So, um, yeah, be interesting to see have what the redacted been... levels of the uh, endotoxin are. <laughs> right. Have they been doing that? And by endotoxin, let me just explain to people that, that these E. coli, it's how they create the diarrheas and they create bad illness and things. They, they release this lipopolysaccharide that's an endotoxin that's part of their makeup but have have this been be is this being done appropriately that they're testing for these things well the only document that i've seen uh disclosed by the spike fat or in the context of the spike facts product where they did measure endotoxin levels uh the the measurement was redacted, so <laughs> I, th that really blew my mind because I I don't understand why a test result would be redacted. Uh, I, I I can't even speculate. I mean, I have I I've I've thought well maybe the reason why they're redacting it is because it was above some accepted criteria and they didn't want people to know because it's not like they haven't done that before. But again, that's speculation. Um, yeah, it would be really interesting it, if um, people, we could prompt people who have labs to actually reproduce all of these findings that Kevin and, and Philip and, and and everyone is are finding because this affects everybody. It really does. Yeah. 
Yeah, this would be amazing if they could do that. But I, I'm just astonished at the way people feel they can hide information and not invite worst case speculation. I just, <laughs> I just exactly. don't understand people. Do people exactly. not understand how the human it induces paranoia and speculation when you hide a anything? That's how human brains work. And if you're more towards, if your thinking is a little more paranoid than not, you go way. You can go way all over the place and fill in the unknown. It's sunshine, fresh air, conversation, discourse, repetition of results that's why the scientific method right exactly that's why it's always been since bacon that's the way it's been done and now all of a sudden bacon. and by bacon i mean francis bacon not not pork oh. uh but, but that's <laughs> uh that's and uh moment. he's he invent he, he's really the first example of the experimental method the scientific method and and uh, and it's always been done that way until the present moment. This is what people have got to understand. All right, and to that point, we're going to bring Joseph Freeman in after the break here. Uh, Jessica, you're going to stay with us. We're going to bring Kelly in as well. Dr. Kelly Victor, of course, it's Wednesday. And uh, I think we'll probably kick off with a conversation about the, the shortcomings of studies and randomized control trial. We'll be right back. Fall is right around the corner, which means dry, flaky red skin from allergy season is coming with it. But the best way to take care of your skin is with our skincare secret, Genucel. You don't need to worry about that puffy, tired eye look or those annoying dark spots or even dry flaky skin because Genucel skincare has you covered. Susan and I love our Genucel products so much, we want you to try our personally curated skincare bundles. It's risk-free at genucel.com slash Drew. Genucel works so well, you can see the results in this unplanned live moment on our show when the Redness Repair Cream repaired my skin in just minutes right before your eyes. Their concentrated vitamin C serum helps keep your skin plump and hydrated. Plus, with their immediate effects, you can see astonishing results in under 12 hours. Quick, effective, and easy. Go to genucel.com slash Drew right now to try our bundles and save over 60% today. And remember to enroll in Genucel's world-class concierge program for additional savings and free shipping. Don't wait. It's genucel.com slash Drew. G-E-N-U-C-E-L dot com slash D-R-E-W. I want to share with you a teeth whitening system that goes beyond merely enhancing your smile. Primal Life Organics Real White Teeth Whitening System offers convenience and rapid results without harsh chemicals. Light. Blue light for whitening. Red light for gum and oral hygiene. And you can just do both if you wish. Works naturally, promoting gum healing, tooth remineralization, gives you a brighter and a healthier smile. Again, no peroxide involved. Consistent usage yields remarkable results. Take this opportunity to transform your smile and at the same time, optimize your oral health. Aim for five times a week for the best outcomes. Discover more about this remarkable teeth whitening system and other products at drdrew.com primal today. That again is drdrew.com p-r-i-m-a-l. Be sure to use that link for 60% off drdrew.com slash p-r-i-m-a-l. Do it today for 60% off. Some platforms have banned the discussion of controversial topics. If this episode ends here, the rest of the show is available at drdrew.tv. There's nothing in medicine that doesn't boil down to a risk-benefit calculation. It is the mandate, public health, 
to consider the impact of any particular mitigation scheme on the entire population. This is uncharted territory, Drew. And here we are, Dr. Kelly Victory. It's I give you Jessica Rose, and uh, after a few minutes, we'll bring in Dr. Freeman. Terrific. Hey, Jess, welcome back. So happy to, to have Hi, you here. Kelly. Uh, hey, uh, let me just follow up on this issue about polyethylene glycol, PEG. I had huge concern about that from the very, very beginning as somebody who has a very severe, long-standing allergy to polyethylene glycol. Mm -hmm. It turns out that it's a very common allergy. Um, PEG is used, a lot of people don't know this, in topical agents all the time. It's in a very commonly used, for example, in cosmetics, in uh, sunscreens, lotions, that kind of stuff. And that for me, and probably I'm guessing for the majority of people with that allergy doesn't cause concern. It's only when you take it orally. And I found out the hard way taking a medication that actually uh, went under your tongue and the carrier was polyethylene glycol. Uh, and I developed a Stevens-Johnson's type uh, reaction and, oh and was very, yeah, it pr wow. profoundly ill uh, from it. Yes, um, profoundly ill. And it turns out that that's not that uncommon. I can't imagine what would happen to me if I injected it. Um, that's when I put it under my tongue. Um, if somebody injected it into my arm, I, I can only imagine. And that's why I found it so stunning uh, that uh, physician after physician and nurse after nurse was perfectly happy to have me injected with it when I was in the hospital, uh, telling me that, it's, don't worry, you're here. We can take care of you if you become deathly ill. Uh, anyway, <laughs> kind of uh, these are different times. I want to change gears for one minute before we bring um, Dr. Freiman on. Just you posted a link to an article or a story about this study done in the UK looking at all-cause mortality in people vaccinated versus unvaccinated people in the UK. Um, I, is that something that you feel comfortable talking about? I won't do the study justice, but it looked at rates, all-cause mortality rates and broke it down based on vaccination status in the UK. And it's a large group because they were looking at people over the age of 18, which in the UK is about 50 million people. Uh, and it appeared to me, based on what you linked, that that study showed pretty clearly that the vaccine itself was the cause of increased mortality, um, nothing else. Is that a study you can talk about? Uh, it's probably a cross post. So it, I, I'm not really the all-cause all mortality person, but yeah. So, um, but I would comment that the weirdest part about it is the, the absolute um, lack of possibility that the, the increase in deaths, which doesn't have any known cause, could absolutely not be due to these products that were rolled out in 2021. So yeah, it's that's the part about it that really boggles my mind. I mean, something is killing uh, young people, um, healthy people. There are more people dying across the board, and and the, this is data. I mean, this this isn't. It, it's it's nothing more than um, data that's being collected. So data doesn't lie. People lie. So, so something has to explain this, and uh, and the timing is is unusual, <laughs> and and yeah. makes it suspicious. So, um, yeah, it's uh, yeah, that's that's 
what I would say about that. I mean, actually, somebody asked me the other day, um, it, it was a really good question. Uh, it was, no, yeah, it was. It was a spinoff of an interview I saw with uh, Catherine Austin Pitts, and she made a really interesting comment about how a, a lot of the adverse events that we're seeing can kind of easily be written off as kind of the the end game of somebody's existing condition. And I, I'm, I've been calling that symptom laundering. Um, and mm -hmm. I think that she's absolutely right. For, for somebody who's older or who has some kind of uh, condition, an autoimmune condition or cancer, it seems like these things, um, for all intents and purposes, are absolutely ramping up all of these, these conditions. It, it's got some kind of immunological uh, dysfunctional node. Um, but of course, not even the people are making the association uh, back to the shots. They're just thinking, oh, well, this is just the, the disease course running its course, and this would have happened anyway. Um, so I thought that was really interesting. So somebody asked me about that and, and they said, well, what can we actually do to, to jostle people, to engage them into starting to think that maybe there's a connection between this and this? And, well, go outside of that realm of, um, of possibility where this, this is just something, uh, a problem that you've already had that is you know, following through. Look at kids, look at healthy athletes. I mean, we already are, but this is, it's, it's very, very important that we push this because there's absolutely no reason for a child, for example, who's healthy to succumb to any kind of severe adverse event after getting an injection, unless it's because of the injection. So there's no way to argue with that. Um, so yeah, it's uh... well, to, yeah. Well, to, to to wit, I would say you know uh, the the concept of this new diagnosis, sudden adult death syndrome, SADS, as mm. if this was something that existed prior to the COVID vaccinations. We have had they, they made up this new category called sudden adult death syndrome. What are you talking about? That honestly, that yeah, diagnosis exactly. did not exist. <laughs> what are you talking about? You're saying, what are you talking about? You know, and people sort of throwing it around as if, oh, you know, SADS. I'm saying, no, I don't. I, I, it's a made-up diagnosis that didn't exist prior to the need to have something to label all of these people who are suddenly dropping dead with no other explanation. So, I, I know that. Um, we want to bring Dr. Fryman into this conversation as well, but I will tee it up in this way um, before the, all four of us start talking. Um, there's no question that we have seen this unprecedented uh, number of adverse events. There's been a lot of uh, daylight thrown on you know, concerns about the trials, concerns about pharmaceutical uh, companies uh, you know, owning the, uh, the scientific journals, lots of interest in or conflicts of interest and those sorts of things being exposed. Um, but suffice to say, this didn't just start in the past two or three years with COVID vaccinations. We have all become, certainly I and uh, Drew have become much more aware of it, uh, much more cognizant of the absolute um, sort of, you know, 
what do you call it, uh, ownership of the scientific journals by big pharma, those sorts of things, the way that the FDA and the CDC are corrupted, uh, the amount of money that they're making on patents that they own and on and on and on. Um, but suffice to say, this is not something that started yesterday. And so I want to kind of have that as the backdrop for the conversation that we have going forward for when uh, Dr. Fryman uh, exposes his conversation with the FDA and more the uh, information that you, Jess, are throwing on these studies and what we're learning about these particular injections, that this is not something that is new. And I think uh, for me, it's the consummate existential crisis as a physician, because I really have to wonder what really to what extent have the therapeutics that I have used, the scientific studies that I've relied upon, uh, the constructs yeah. that I have, you know, that were foundational, which, which of them really are on faulty, really shaky ground? Um, because uh, this has been, we have exposed an awful lot in the last three years that isn't, uh, isn't particularly flattering on the uh, industry of, of medicine. Well, it's true. I, I would say that... Really uh, Go ahead, Jessica. Go ahead, Jess. I just wanted to throw in, it's, it's absolutely true. And it's, it's kind of a mixed blessing that this has happened um, to shed light on these problems that are inherent in this entire system, this industry, um, which is supposed to be about health. But um, this mRNA stuff, the modified mRNA LNP platform thing, it really needs to stop because the trend now is that because these things have allegedly been proven to be safe and effective, and I'm being sarcastic here, they have not been, they've actually been on, like, we've provided very strong evidence as a scientific community that they're not either of those things. Um, and further, you know, follow-up products, which are going to be used in humans for cancer therapies, you watch for this, it's coming. Um, for other types of vi viruses, packaging, you know, all in one products using this mRNA tech, uh, animal use. I mean, it's it's all coming. And the, the, the problem is going to be there aren't going to be any trials. There aren't going to be right. any tests right. done anymore because it's proven to be safe. If people are just listening, I'm doing air quotes there. Um, it's absolutely not the case. So this is the danger. Like we we really need to like ding, ding, ding the bell on these particular products no, you, and you, on the inherent problems. Yeah. No, you, you are spot on here, Jess. And I think that's a point that needs to be hammered home. I frequently get criticized when I um, say that these aren't safe and effective. People say, you know, mRNA technology has been around for 15, 20 years. I'm saying, you're right, it has. <laughs> Let's be real clear. It's been it's around. Been studied. every. And it has failed and sometimes miserably with tragic results where all of the test subjects died. It's not that we haven't tried to create a safe and effective mRNA shot in the past. It's that they have failed. Okay. They have failed over and over and over again. It has not been proven. And you are absolutely right. They have done, you know, sleight of hand. Uh, they have met, led people to believe that these vaccines are safe and effective. And therefore, the platform is now safe and effective to use going forward, and they're going to use it for everything. And I've said from the beginning, this was their goal all along. This was always their goal yeah. to make mRNA a household word 
to make people believe that it was a platform that was absolutely tried and true, nothing to worry about, and that people would accept this genetic modification uh, as something that is something that we've always had in the way that you accept uh, other vaccines or other technologies. So I think that that to me, Jessica, is is the single biggest risk of all of this, independent of all of the horrific adverse events we've seen, is their ability to pull the wool over the eyes of people to believe that this platform itself has been safe and doesn't need further testing. Well, let's yeah, uh, let's get to the RCTs and the uh, and the flaws in the studies and whatnot. We're going to bring Dr. Joseph Freiman in here. Actually, but uh, I want to say two th what. Sorry, Kelly, Drew. Oh, uh, oh, wait, Kelly. he's back now. Sorry, he had stepped away. I was looking at his camera and he stepped oh. away, but he's, he's there now. Uh, you can continue. Sorry. Okay, good. Uh, but I was going to say, Vinay Prasad has been complaining about these inadequacies in what comes to market for quite some time. And uh, I'll say that, you know, if there are issues with the mRNA technology, so be it. If somebody has a terminal illness and there's a possibility that 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 delivery system could help somebody with a you know life-threatening condition and turn that around, is worth the risk. Is it worth the risk for a healthy 19-year-old right. to use that kind of? Right. That, that's a wholly different question. Unless we understand these things yep. clearly, uh, we're not doing our job. So speaking of that, uh, Dr. Freiman has been worried about this long before we got to the table, Kelly. Um, and he's yes. he has been talking to the FDA about some of the shortcomings. Dr. Freiman, welcome back. Uh, I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Victory. But let me, before I do, just say, could you just, just sketch for people again a review of your of your review of the data and what you found. You mean from from a, our study that we performed on serious From your study, events? yeah. What, what, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. What was different okay. in your study so our, versus what was what was reported by the FBA? I, a quick summary of it is we reanalyzed the original trials from the messenger from the messenger RNA vaccines were Pfizer, Moderna. We identified that in the Pfizer trial, initially, there was an increase in serious adverse events, and it basically it has to do with how you count them. It's There was more events in the vaccine group than the placebo group. If anyone counts them, you will find that. It's really not a debatable fact. Then the next part of our study was we looked at a, a list that was created by a group called the Brighton Collaboration, which is a World Health Organization endorsed list of something called adverse events of special interest and what this is are are adverse events that are prior to the clinical trial they said these look out for these these are potential harms to look for so we then took that list and said are these increased in the in the uh messenger rna vaccine clinical trials to get rid of statistical noise so that things that were probably not related to the vaccine would would go away and we could focus in kind of like a magnifying glass on these adverse events and there we find that when you combine pfizer and moderna they both they both appear to have an increase in these serious adverse events of special interest and together it's quite clear the the rate is about one in 800 one serious adverse event for every 800 participant in the uh, original clinical trial which is I believe about it was about a 40% in that range, a 40% increase in these serious adverse events. And then the last part of our trial was we we looked at the these this increase in serious adverse events versus 
in the clinical trial, how many people were prevented from being hospitalized by the, by the COVID-19 vaccines, by the messenger RNA vaccines. And we found that for both in the Pfizer and the Moderna trial, it appeared that the messenger RNA vaccine was causing more serious adverse events than it was preventing. And I just want to be clear, there's lots of limitations on how to interpret that uh, last part of the, the harm benefit analysis, because, you know, for example, if the trial had went longer, it's possible more, there would have been more hospitalization reductions. And um, if it, the trial was done in older people, maybe they would have found more hospitalization reductions. So it would have shifted it into another direction. And then on the other hand, if you did the trial in younger, healthier people, people who had been infected before, or if the trial maybe happened during a different variant, such as the one currently being experienced, where the hospitalization and death rate is much lower for each infection and the vaccine's less effective, there the, the, the harm benefit would actually be worse. And so you would actually end up with even the ratio would, would end up being thrown in the other direction. And that harm benefit analysis is uh, it's fragile is I guess what you, you, you would say and that things can throw it in, in either direction, I think is the best way to interpret it. And that's the, the and, summary, and, a very quick summary. And of, what, were uh, the, what were the special interest adverse events? If you could just, uh, just sketch out some of those for us. There, I'm wondering if it includes some of the things I'm seeing. It's what's interesting because I'm seeing neuropathies right. and pot syndrome and arrhythmias. And is that is that the mm -hmm. stuff that was a serious uh, special interest? All, all, yes, all of those would have been included, I believe, onto the adverse event special interest list. From our, our trial, what it looks like is is that uh, there's it's causing it would be causing a very rare harms in many different you know, regions, many different, uh, you know, body systems. And so that when they add up, so, cause if you have, you know, 10 different serious adverse events in, in 10 different, different causes, 10 different ones at a rate of one in 10,000, those add up. And then you have a serious adverse harm rate of one in a thousand. So lots of serious adverse events, they, they add up together. And what we saw in our trial that the most, the not, it's not, more than 50%, it's probably 30, 40% were, but it was the most common are in the coagulation disorders, which are blood clotting yes. and, and, and bleeding. Those are the, those are the ones that mm -hmm. were the most increased in the vaccine group compared to the placebo in Pfizer and in Moderna. But it's not that their rates so crazy. It's a, you know, three in 10,000, four in 10,000. And so, you, but then you add on these other ones, all the other random systems, like you just pointed out there, and together, that's how you would get that one in 800 number. I, I'm trying to make sense of it. I've said many, many times that I think the adverse events to me, we are having a pandemic of the itises, uh, you know, itis meaning inflammation, you know, we, it's pericarditis, neuritis, nephritis, hepatitis, colitis, you know, all of the itises, this is an inflammatory process. I'm not sure how the coagulation issues fit into that, what it is about the inflammatory. I, you know, the, the clotting cascade was not my strong suit in medical school. So I, 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 I have I a forgot. theory. I, no, I have a theory. Yeah. I have a, so, my so theory is, my yeah. theory from the beginning, 
my theory from the beginning has been that this is an endotheliitis and the endotheliitis right. is yes. interacting with yes. the bloodborne uh, elements. And that's been confirmed uh, by a couple of people that I've talked to. Yeah. And so that so again, that yeah. would fall into the itis, the pandemic of the itis is it's an inflammatory process. In that case, an inflammation of the lining of the blood vessel that then attracts yes. platelets and cause it serves as a nidus for a blood clot to form. Um, so I think, uh, Joe, you can you can uh, verify this, that the adverse events of special interest, I think, mostly fall into, again, those inflammatory processes. There's something about these spike proteins or the spike proteins in conjunction with the lipid nanoparticles uh, that causes this gross inflammatory, inflammatory uh, process. Yeah, that would be, that, would, that, that was the general concern that started our, you know, this project mm -hmm. was the discovery that the spike protein is calling is causing endothelial dysregulation and i mean the spike protein that they from the covid vaccine which is coincidentally yes. the same spike protein messenger rna that we put into the vaccine even said that they're not the same but if they weren't the same then the vaccine wouldn't work so it's it's a little confusing the the, the messaging on this but the spike protein itself has been shown to cause endothelial dysregulation. Uh, but so, yes, and the blood system, it pretty much connects to every organ system of our body. So I would imagine the organs that are at the highest risk of endothelial dysfunction would be the ones that would end up suffering from from such a such a problem. But I, I don't know the mechanism. That's not what our our study was not mechanistic based. Jessica right. can probably give you mechanism much better than I could. Well, I could comment. Um, Mark Girardot, plugging him here, has done a lot of excellent work on this. And uh, it, it, there, there's no doubt that this is about which cells are actually getting transfected because whichever cells and, and more likely, I'll just add that on, these are going to be the endothelial cells lining blood vessels. Mm -hmm. So you have entry of this product into your body, either intramuscularly, it's going to hit the capillaries, or maybe you're going to hit a vein or an artery. And in any case, it's going to enter the blood system. It just matters what the concentration or as Mark would put it, the, whether or not a bolus forms. Bolus is just like a ball. So if you have a concentrated amount of these lipid nanoparticles, and we're talking about like trillions of them apparently, um, in a very small uh, vessel like a capillary, the, the likelihood of transfection is going to be really high just because of the, the conserved space. So if you have a, a punch of uh, transfected cells, like in one region, then you're going to have all the things that come with that. You're gonna have your, your spike protein translated, churned up, mounted on MHCs, CTL, sorry, I, I'm saying things that nobody knows what the words mean, but um, <laughs> you're going to have an immune response mounted against those cells that put flags on their surfaces saying, hey, I have a foreign protein on me and they're gonna get destroyed. So if you have a big local uh, destruction, that's going to cause your, your clotting uh, pathway to get disturbed, overactivated, and clots are going to start to be thrown. And that's how you're, gonna, you're potentially going to get necrosis later on down the line. So that's, that's what um, 
Mark uh, has, has actually written a lot of articles on this, and I prompt everyone to go read them. Um, he's, he's, he, he makes a lot of sense on a lot of this, and it, it really is just, it's, a, it, it's, it's like you said, it's about the circulatory system reaching every single part right. of the body, all the, right. all the tissue. And it, it's just a numbers game. Like where, where is there a concentration and is there a concentration of these lipid nanoparticles getting to somewhere? Could be the heart, could be the brain, it could be the wherever. Um, right. And of course, they're going to get there in, in, in the circulatory system. So... Yeah, sorry, I'm taking all the the talk time. No, no, no yeah. So, I, so I want to I want to take this topic and say, okay, I'm just sitting here watching the screen myself and saying, here we are, four four scientists who all have done the deep dive on this over the past three and a half, almost coming up on four years now. We all have a pretty deep understanding of the mechanisms of the uh, the the rate of these these incidences, you know, all the risks. We know all this. Okay. Let's change gears. We, turns out we have um, some agencies in the United States whose job it is to know this stuff. Uh, let's start with the, uh, with the FDA and the CDC and the NIH. So what I want to talk about, and I'll throw this first to you, uh, Joe, um, if we know this, what did the FDA know? When did they know it? Okay, and what did yeah. they do about it? Because it's, a, it's, it's implausible to think that just the four of us are so darn smart that we're the four who figured it out. And those poor, you know, <laughs> uh, people slogging away at the FDA, just none of this crossed their radar and they have no reason to know this. Let's talk about from your perspective, Joe, what did the FDA know? When did they know it? And what did they do about it? All right. I actually, you know, I'm, I'm all for, you know, giving the FDA problems when they're, when they're doing a bad job. And I, I, I think that, uh, the, the reason we bring this up here is essentially was a discussion that, uh, my group of authors from our study, we presented our study prior to publication because we kept getting rejected. So we thought it was important for the FDA to know about our study. And they called us in for a meeting with, essentially all of their their top top officials of biologics basically for vaccines vaccine safety and we ended up having a meeting with them and I, I think that you know there was a large amount of the you know even these top officials who I do think were uh, actively concerned and looking for if the harms were true and uh, the the issue that I, I felt um, in much of our discussion was that that they uh, they need confirmation that the harms are absolutely 100% true and before they're going to like pull the lever and and so in in statistics right you have we, we say things are, are statistically significant when they're 95% when we're saying it's 95% certain it's not random but for for harm in my opinion there's if they're if we're eighty percent certain that a thing's going to harm a population, or you know ninety percent, or you know this is, I think that we maybe need a different way of judging these things for harm versus benefit because we don't want to give out a drug that's not beneficial. That's pretty clear. We want to be real certain because if you give out a drug that's not beneficial, you're only going to deliver harm. So you want to wait for that. And uh, 
But I, I believe that the FDA has kind of resulted in their way of evaluating harm based off of our meeting at, was that they presume that the null hypothesis is true, that there is no harm until we until they can absolutely demonstrate it and they can demonstrate it over and over again. And the problem I have is two that, questions. Yeah. Hey, go ahead and mm-hmm. finish your thought, but then I want to ask a question. Go ahead. The problem. The problem is that the harms that we're most concerned about, so you have myocarditis, right, which has, we know the vaccine causes, but it's a very, very rare event. I've seen it once or twice in 10 years as an ER doctor. But, and so, you know, if I, if I may, it's like, so that's not going to, you're not going to really see that so much increase. But imagine if you increase the heart attack by 10 or 20%, right? If you increase a heart attack by 10 or 20%, that's going to cause hundreds, 100,000 heart attacks in the country. But right. it's really difficult to see that. Imagine even just like the, this is, a, this is a way of explaining kind of why it's so hard epidemiologically, but as an ER doctor, I'll maybe see one heart attack a month. So that's, let's say 12 a year. If we increase that 10%, 20%, we're talking about, I'm going to see still about one a month. And I wouldn't notice that difference in terms of my my day to day activities. And it turns out that when you try to do this in big epidemiological studies with millions and millions of people, you're not ever going to to see that. Uh, you're, well, you will see it, and then on the next study you won't see it, and then you'll see it again, and then you won't see it. And that's our surveillance system is not designed to pick up something like that. It's not. It's simply not a. It's not possible for it to pick up small increases in pretty common common causes of serious but, harm. But since since you had wait, you you had direct uh, interaction with the FDA, which I have not, but it seems to me that you've laid out a fundamental flaw. If their approach fundamentally is we won't act until we have proof that harm is being caused, can you imagine using that same thing if you're a manufacturing facility making a baby stroller? Or if you were an auto manufacturer making a car, if you were if you were not building that, a, a if you were building not, a bridge, and you that. had to prove that you know that, that the yeah. wheels actually fall off. The I stroller. would argue that this this is a wholly new position by the FDA. I I it seemed to me that they were overly cautious. No, it's not. No, I no, I, I do not believe this is a, a new position by the FDA. This is. I mean, even from the approval standpoint, the original concern that I was pushing was this efficacy that you don't want people to take a drug unless we have certainty of efficacy. And we would imagine that how, how the FDA standard is supposed to be, you're supposed to have two randomized controlled trials, double blinded, and they're supposed to find an outcome that's of clinical, that's clinically meaningful. But if you go and look through the last 10, 20 years of of FDA approvals, you will find a ton that are not blinded, a ton that are not not randomized. There's not even another group. Placebo just, controlled. Not right. even placebo, not yeah. placebo controlled. Right. And their no. outcome is not clinically meaningful and not replicated. And these drugs are still been getting approved. So this is the, the COVID vaccine trials actually, in terms of if you look at the last 20 years of uh, drug approvals, is is actually not, it's definitely not the worst. It's not the it's, it's far from the worst. Right. We've actually had many more drugs. And then the other part, what I was talking about there is our surveillance system, which is is supposed to be looking out for harms. And 
The problem is that if we don't do good, really well-controlled clinical trials before we approve these drugs, we get end up in this situation where we live in a world of uncertainty and we have to rely on a lot of observational data where sometimes we can figure out some serious harms and we can identify those and then we get to and then we withdraw those drugs but once a drug is approved we can't do randomized controlled trials on it anymore and many of those drugs just live in uncertainty and uh that is our our current situation and the covid vaccine is an example of this and that we don't know if uh they, they because they didn't study hospitalization reduction specifically they didn't study it over two to three years you know i take it like this right you i remember drew you said last time that you believed that overall there was it was beneficial in the elderly but you were uncertain in the younger healthy mm-hmm. population that's a fair belief correct the belief you don't know you don't know that because mm-hmm. there wasn't a, correct a trial that we have to rely on and imagine like a hypothetical experiment was done and the covid vaccine placebo controlled double blind randomized control trial went on for two to three years and it ended today mm-hmm. now imagine that so everyone in this vaccine trial has been infected with covid multiple times some of them now who gets hospitalized more from everything, because I imagine in this trial, the vaccinated group would get boosted whenever the CDC decided randomly that it was the time for them to get boosted, which they have done, which they do. They just make up a, a time, boost now, this group boost now, and if they if we just listen to those, so we did it perfectly. Would the group that got the vaccine end up being hospitalized less when you take into account all the boosters, the reduction in COVID hospitalization that looks like it probably happened in the first six months, but less clear after boosters. So did it just delay hospitalization for six months? Did it, we, the answer is, actually, do any of you guys have an answer? Do you think you know what, how that trial would fall out? Like I, uh, yeah, I yeah, my, it's, it's a brilliant experiment. Well, ahead, the, Jess, the reason I get bogged with? down, go ahead, Jess. I just think that's a brilliant thought experiment. I didn't even extend my brain into that arena. But yeah, I imagine that, uh, well, from what I'm seeing in the peer-reviewed literature and and, uh, and on the ground and from case studies, um, the, the people who are multiply injected would certainly uh, represent most of the hospitalized people. But uh, yeah, what, what an interesting thing that would have been. And, and also, if they hadn't... Uh, injected all the placebo participants as well that would be helpful <laughs> and 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 it's a, it's a reasonable opinion it's your belief and the point of what i'm trying to say here is that, and we could have someone else here who says i believe that that it would have had a great reduction in hospitalization down mm-hmm. to the one-year-old and that's their yeah. belief the reality is we are uncertain to the answer to that question Mm -hmm. because we didn't answer it. And we're never going to fully 100% know. Yet the problem here that I I think exists probably within our population is that um, there's a group of people who are confident. Like you said, I don't know. I think 
maybe we're gonna have more hospitalizations. And and you, and I'm sure you know, Doctor Drew, I would presume say, I think we'd see a benefit in the elderly. I'd yep. guess Doctor Victory will say, yep. I'm not so sure we'd see any benefit. I think <laughs> yeah. it might be overall harm. <laughs> right. Correct. And, and but right, you would have a voice of uncertainty in what you're saying. The problem here yeah. is that there's a huge percentage of our population who's confident and certain that everyone ages six months and up would have a hospitalization reduction. This group of people, Mm -hmm. which includes our government, are irrationally confident. They're an irrationally confident group. And now there's also on the other end of this, there are groups who are confident that if you give this, if this study was done, that every single person within this trial, every single age category will be harmed. This group is also irrationally confident. The parallel economy has empowered us to care for our health, well-being, as well as longevity. Likewise, for us pet parents who now have a place to go when it comes to keeping the family dogs, cats, even horses in the best shape possible. As a dog dad, I'm thrilled to be working with Pet Club 24-7, a company founded by two guys who lost dogs to serious conditions, including cancer. Pet Club 24-7 has an incredible array of products, including a line of supplements for humans, such as the Inforce Plus Corollius Versicolor and Inforce Corollius Versicolor with Reishi. My friend and colleague, Christina Ferrari, a cancer survivor herself, swears by it. When I was diagnosed, the doctor in the emergency room told me, you have two years to live. Oh, boy. Along with the stem cell, I took these. I have been in remission for eight years now. For dogs, mush puppy treats are a fan favorite. Rex, you want to, oh, boy. <laughs> he came right. Oh, there he is. They are also made with the Coriolis Versicolor Mushroom, which supports their immune system, according to hundreds of clinical studies. Here's Kristen Ludlow, National Vice President. That strain does matter. We do have the most potent strain, and we also extract it in a proprietary way. And that's why we've been having such wonderful experiences with these products. Mush puppies are made here in the U.S. There are no fillers. It's non-addicting. Your dog can't accidentally overdose. Go to drdrew.com slash petclub247 for discount off the list price. That is drdrew.com. P-E-T-C-L-U-B-247, Pet Club 247. The entire, this is the majority of our population of this country is irrationally confident. And so it's, I apologize because I've definitely just offended a large portion of your audience <laughs> on whichever one they are, but it's a No, but you're right. But, it's but this is why, but, this, but this is, this is why, this is why the average vaccine takes and should take six to eight years to come to market because people shouldn't have to guess. They shouldn't have to come to their own. What's your best guess conclusion? We should have this data. We should know what does happen to pregnant women when you inject them with this. We should know what do you actually decrease transmission by this thing. We should know is there, you know, what is the impact of multiply boosting people in rapid succession? Those are questions that are normally you know, figured out during the six, eight, 10, 12 years worth of testing that's supposed to happen before you launch something on the public. And certainly before you start doing something as unprecedented as mandating it for people against their will. Mm -hmm. Yes. Joseph, can I, can I ask you what you think would have happened if we'd let this actually run and also 
what your opinion on why it wasn't run for three years, for example. Do you believe the whole it was an emergency story? I, if, I, if it was run for the entire time, what I believe is that uh, is that it likely, I think it likely would have increased hospitalizations in, in uh, below people 65. But um, and in the older group, I initially thought that uh, it would probably have reduced hospitalizations. However, now when I, I think about it over a two to three year time period, I think it may have possibly delayed it for six months. But I, I, I'm not mm. so certain of the hospitalization and death reductions that our observational studies are, are suggesting because in the clinical trial, we didn't see for, for the number for once people were infected within the vaccinated group in the clinical trial, we didn't see that those people got hospitalized less. That that doesn't appear to be the case. They didn't be they didn't. And they also didn't appear to die less. So so yeah. when it stopped preventing infections and that became clear and then it started just not preventing infections, but preventing hospitalization, I, I can't say that that's not possible. I just don't see any evidence from that from the clinical trial. So I question if that actually occurred or if it was a um, basically a classical uh, observational bias that happens like, called a, a healthy user bias that, that we or healthy vaccine mm. bias that tends to be seen in vaccine studies where you end up seeing a mortality benefit or a hospitalization benefit in the group that got the vaccine. And uh, so I, I'm, I just don't think that we could rely on, I, I don't think that we could rely on observational data for efficacy of drugs that is classically been failed. It's a, that's been a classic failure of a t every time we do this, we end up making a massive mistake and uh, it just happened time and time again through the history of medicine, of observational data, let, misleading let, us into believing something's working when it isn't. Let me throw a wild card in here, um, Joe, as well. Um, and do, would it affect your um, guess uh, as to decrease in hospitalization rates, even in the older people, if we had allowed people to be treated? if we'd actually treated people mm. with the readily available, safe and effective medications, everything from, you know, steroids to ivermectin to all the things we could have done rather than antibiotics, you know, would that antibiotics so that people weren't dying of bacterial pneumonia that could have easily been treated because it was simply called COVID and they were put on a ventilator and allowed to die. Um, yeah, <laughs> these are, uh, right. so, you know, would, would the fact that, because I would submit to you, and again, you know, we're all guessing here because the study wasn't done, but I think yeah. any positive benefit of the vaccines would be eliminated had people actually been allowed to be treated with the medications that we knew from the very beginning would have to been very, to, very effective. It's a different study, though. I, I, would, I, would, I would push back. And, uh, you know, I, I fall into a category of people who've questioned the vaccine. And I, I hold these alternative treatments to the same standard that, that I hold the vaccine in that that I, I need to have the large scale randomized trials to to really fully evaluate it. But can I I'm sympathetic to the use of incredibly safe medications in people who are for conditions that are potentially deadly. I do that in emergency medicine. And uh, 
you know, but without full evidence-based trials, of course, but, uh, would I kind of, do I say for sure that I know which, which medicine's working and which one's not, uh, but I'm, I'm sympathetic to using very safe medications that can be potentially life-saving, right. but I'm not willing to say I'm certain that that, uh, that any of these uh, alternative medications that are plausible, had we studied them better, that that uh, that they offered a hey, benefit. I, you know, I, there's hints hey, Joe. That, that, that they may they may be good, but could you uh, go? Go. I want to make sure we get this in before we run out of time, which is this uncanny procedure the FDA has in terms yeah. of determining certainty of adverse event in relation to a vaccine. And I'm wondering, you you have some recordings legally uh, recorded yeah. of your interaction with the FDA. I wonder if you actually have the recording where they describe this guy. They got a guy that goes and determines whether something is or is not, it determines the impossible, whether something is or is yeah, not uh, related to the vaccine with certainty. Uh, here, I'll, I'll put the first thing here, which is what they said uh, regarding, uh, here, I'll just play this here. Is, um, you've analyzed the total number of events um, rather than the number of people who had at least one event. So if you look at those tables at the top, it's sort of number of people with an SAE. Now, this is the first thing that they brought up, the first critique of our study. They said we analyzed the number of events versus the number of participants. This is a seems like a statistical argument that's of, of irrelevance, but turns out that the FDA, for all of its previous drug studies, they don't count the number of serious adverse events that happen to people in a clinical trial. They count the they only count the number they only count the number of people who have them. So if wow. you're a person who has multiple things and especially imagine in a trial where you're given two doses to have vaccine one vaccine dose one dose two if you have a serious advert if you have a heart attack after dose one then you have a, a stroke or another heart attack after dose two that's counted as one and now the fact that the fda just doesn't count the number of events at all there's no reason to not also count that it's, i'm not saying that counting the number of participants is bad no 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 they're both useful and give different information. FDA doesn't do it. And I would put out for anyone who's listening, if you want to go back through FDA trials, because they have not done that in any of our prior trials. And that is a much more sensitive. It will catch more events. It will catch more harm because people who are sensitive to a drug's serious adverse events, turns out they're probably sensitive to more than one. That just how how medicine works if you're going to get one bad one you're probably more likely to get another bad one and that has been uh not uh not what our fda has been doing which concerned out which concerned our our group i would say our entire group and they also i will continue on here from the fda's meeting here and they uh they didn't take here i will play this video this recording here we don't do statistical significance testing of raw numbers of AEs because we don't consider that informative for safety um, for multiplicity reasons and also because, um, for instance, if you look at the list of AESIs, there are many things that are related and could be different manifestations of the same phenomenon. And then some of these things are completely different um, SOCs are unlikely to arise from the same mechanism of action and locking them all together for a significance test isn't necessarily. So 
the 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 purpose here of what what these what they're saying here is they're not doing statistical testing not statistical testing on <laughs> on on adverse events they um they they are seriously this is this is really insane <laughs> to me they they no kidding they are they 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 he seriously is saying there we only just look if there's a huge difference that's so obvious that we don't need a statistical test then we say okay that's a big difference let's look into this that is <laughs> that, that's absurd because then he goes on to say that the way that they look at these adverse events is they look at each one and then there's a guy this guy he is a that was the the one who is a uh, who's who's saying this uh that when you when they identify them, they they try to connect it. They go, okay, is this in the right amount of time from the? Is this in the right amount of time from the vaccine? Do they have any comorbidities? Maybe that's what explained this. But when you're using a novel vaccine, how you're supposed to know what 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 serious adverse events are coming? And this is this was this blew the minds of. All of the all of the researchers I was working with, physicians and scientists, that this is the FDA was doing this in such a sense. Here, this is one of my co-authors questioning them on this about not using the fact that it's a randomized controlled trial. You have randomized these two groups. If there's more of something in one of the groups, there's one reason why there's more. It's the thing you used, the medical intervention. That's the whole reason we do randomized controlled trials. When you do observational studies. When you find the difference between groups, you're always like, oh, is it something else that we don't know about that we're not thinking about? It's called a confounder. It's the reason observational studies are so unreliable. Here, they're evaluating randomized controlled trial data the way you evaluate observational data, which is insane. Because I think I said this the last time I was here, a Vioxx heart attack. Someone has a Vioxx heart attack. They come into my ER and they were taking Vioxx and... and how do I know that that heart attack was from Vioxx or was that just a regular heart attack? And they would have had a heart attack if they weren't taking Vioxx. The only reason we know it is because in the randomized trials, more people who took Vioxx had heart attacks. That's all we know. It wasn't like the placebo had zero heart attacks. And only, you know, so hey. this, is, this is one of my co-authors here trying to hit this point home here. Event very likely to have occurred to them in any case then that event is less likely to be related to the investigational problem. Right. It's, uh, that, I mean, it sounds like what's done in, in pharmacovigilance. But is, how, how do you then leverage the fact that you're dealing with a, with a randomized trial? Um, so uh, I, I'm not sure what you mean by that. And again, the using oh, the testing to look for a causal relationship between the investigational product and placebo. Again, it's typically not done for a variety of reasons, one of which is the multiplicity concern because we- So he's saying there, multiplicity is the reason they don't do statistical testing. We are not doing multi multiplicity, saying if you test 200 different serious adverse events, you're gonna find a, a false positive. He's right. We just combined them all. We we ran one test. It's one test, all of them combined. And then if it's increased, you know you have a problem with your drug. You don't know exactly which one of these adverse events is causing it, but 
you know there's a problem if they're if the vaccine group has a has a higher rate of them um this is a <laughs> it was very very concerning right. this entire meeting terrified my entire work group um to to be fully honest they they went on to explain to us that they then began to say that their their rationale for not being concerned was uh, was essentially because of a real real world data didn't didn't confirm with uh, what what uh, didn't didn't connect and it's if you believe in evidence based medicine that's not really how that works if right. you find it in the clinical trial and the observational data isn't uh, connecting it that is that's a problem with your observational data not the clinical trial so they they need to re-look at this and um here this is i guess i guess a question for me is that and i, I actually bring this up for our, our our folks just so that maybe steve and rich can comment more on this is that what what i guess what if i if your, your thesis that seems to me if, if i understand it correctly is that more people experience serious adverse events there was a greater number of serious adverse events with the vaccines than there were people who uh were prevented from having serious COVID 19. Um, and that seems to be a little bit at odds at what my understanding uh, is of understanding the global real world evidence uh, and post-marketing surveillance. So I just. So that, wow. that, that's a re real big disconnect from anyone who understands evidence-based medicine that you're going to compete your, uh, they use the term real world data. I don't know when this term came into popularity but real world data is called observational data. When I went to medical school and I was taught it's not that reliable, yet real world data sounds great. It sounds, oh, it's the real world. That's, that's, the, that's the real thing. It just turns out uh, it's not that reliable. And then we have this problem well, that I was not only that, Not only that, but we, we spoke to the Danish researcher that published that observational real world data on uh, lots having more adverse events than other lots. You know, other certain certain of the manufacturing seem to be associated with much higher adverse event rates. Could not get that published for two years right. and since published completely ignored. So there is there's some weird bias within the real world data that's concerning as well. I, I want to we were challenging them on that if their surveillance data is adequate. And one of my co-authors, who's a, uh, a rheumatologist, a pediatric Blue. rheumatologist, had he had this to say. It's it's quite a taking. Uh, um, this is just an end of one, but February 25th, I filed a VAERS report on a seven-year-old patient who had a cardiac arrest following his first um, Pfizer vaccination. Uh, it was about 30, 30 hours after he got the vaccine. Um, I didn't receive any follow-up about it. Um, the patient died about eight days later. I submitted another email offering to update the, you know, the report with the death of the patient. Uh, it's been two weeks now. I still haven't heard anything. So I'm wondering if there's more extensive surveillance than just fears-based surveillance for cases like this. And I would think that if the death yeah. of a seven-year-old following the vaccine is not, you know, meriting uh, follow-up, either the system is totally overwhelmed or there's there's something wrong with the reporting system. I, I, I want to yeah. play you some of the responses to, to this because 
we're we're explaining to them that there's a you just from this man's you know was one physicians who just happens to be within our uh within our study group he, this is his own experience with the VARES experience uh with VARES and here's the here's what here's what they have to say such interest we're happy to um, uh, make sure that it, it didn't get waylaid somewhere. Usually the, the de uh, pediatric deaths, I know that they have been very good about, um, about chasing down. I know because I've heard details of each of them, uh, uh in, in many cases. That doesn't mean that you, <laughs> this is, this is the, the worst response you could think this man saying you didn't Word follow up salad. on a pediatric death. And, and I, right. I want to finish this Word thing. Salad. He, our FDA, the FDA, instead, what this should have been like is a holy, this is a holy shit moment. Leaders of the FDA, guy saying yeah. it's been two weeks since a kid died. And you haven't contacted me saying, okay, we are going to figure out what went wrong here. We're going to fix this problem. You right. should have been contacted. Instead, we're getting things about, oh, email us, email us. Oh, just write, write a, a, a huge study and then get a, a meeting with the heads of the FDA. And then you can email us about something. But here, let's just go on. Um, but um, does that does that sound right, Steve? Yeah, but they should be followed up within yeah. within a matter of days, actually. So we'll so just just drop me an email um, <laughs> or Rich, and then we'll follow, we'll send it to our surveillance group. That's our surveillance to group. make sure that it, it didn't. It did fall through the cracks. Yeah, it, 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 it my, my guess is, if anything, it's just that they're behind. But I can't believe they're. I, I can't believe they're something behind. like this would fall through the cracks. You can't believe something would like this. So would, I, it did I, fall I, through I, the I, cracks. I, you I just heard about like it. I'm pointing fingers, but I, I think that the, the larger issue. I. Oh, and just to put that, we reasonable. Yes. You know, I just say just just to put this in in some per, in some perspective, um, just a couple of weeks ago, the FDA reprimanded and shut down an infant, a baby formula manufacturing facility because four children were hospitalized and two of them subsequently died. OK, for those. That's tragic. Don't get me wrong. Tragic. But they shut down an entire manufacturing facility and pulled the product from the market because four children were hospitalized. Compare that to the tens of thousands of reports that we have on VIRS, which we know is grossly underreported, by the way. The V-Safe, they pulled that entire surveillance system off yep. the and stopped. You know, in fact, one of you should talk about that. The V-Safe system, which was kind of the backup specifically geared towards the COVID shots, where VIRS is, you know, takes all comers for vaccines. The V-Safe was Again, not my system. I didn't create it. None of us created it. It was created by them specifically to look at adverse events related to these vaccines. They have been they have abdicated their responsibility to follow these up. If this doesn't piss off every American, I don't. Then you are asleep at the wheel because what you are exposing, uh, Dr. Freeman, I think is horrifying. This is this is the state of what we've got for the FDA. God help us. Yeah, no, I have I have much more yeah, of this recording and, that is terrifying. It's it's a terrifying thing that and, and I Joseph, don't believe. Yeah, go on, please. It's it's. I just want to tell you that this this is common. Um, I I have regular conversations with the the woman who created Open Bears. We're we're always going back and forth on this data, and uh, it, it's 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 a thing 
that if you file a report successfully into the system, which is a big deal, and it doesn't always happen for everyone that they go from having a temporary ID to a permanent ID, but if you try to do a follow-up report, i.e. if you originally filed for myocarditis and then that person died, it, it will never get done. It's, it's almost a thing that you can say about VAERS. And, and it's, it's true what you said. It's like, this is either the most inefficient system ever, or it's just kind of inherently designed that way. And, and I don't know why. Well, I mean, it's, well. Yes, I, I can explain. I think that my concern personally is that we have a system here of, of uh, the FDA. The FDA is responsible for approving drugs. Peter Marks, who was in that meeting with us, the is a head of biologics vac- of, for vaccine safety. He was there. He actually is. He was in that meeting. Yes, this was the top. Oh, this was a top mm. level of meet, a meeting of directors of biostats, directors of this was from all, the directors across the biological departments. And what he has a signature on the approval of a booster. I don't remember which one, but he has a signature on it. Now, the same people who are approving drugs are responsible for checking if they made a good idea, if that was a good idea. That is a serious conflict of interest that we've had built into our system. The CDC is making policy recommendations and then they are the the government of studying if their policy recommendations were a good idea. We have built a system that is totally not making sense. Uh, uh, And then to to cap this off, imagine that uh, the we allow these pharmaceutical companies to do their own trials, that they collect all of the data instead of someone like the NIH being responsible. Board mm-hmm. government workers just being unbiased saying, hey, does this thing reduce hospitalization? I don't know, let's see. Or it's the most perfect use of bureaucracy. And, and we can figure out if things work or not, but if you use a pharmaceutical company which pays a, a, res, a research you know, lab, clinical lab, to research this, which is, gets a new contract each time, it, as long as it keeps finding good results, right. you're going to end up with not necessarily honest reviews. Like when I buy a Samsung TV, I don't read Samsung's reviews of the TV, I, I <laughs> right. look to see independent reviews. <laughs> you don't? Yeah, the, way, the, way, the way we are, are, are accepting drugs in, in to, to be allowed into the population is essentially just reading the Samsung review that this has the best picture, the best sound, you know? And, and that, is, that, is a, that is just a really serious issue that we, is easily preventable. Our, we have the personnel, the researchers to do these trials properly and figure out what drugs work and what don't we have all the resources we know exactly how to do it we're not doing it this we are allowing corporations who have criminal records for lying to us we're trusting them this is our system has major major issues and people do need to be scared because this is the covid vaccine if this is the thing that brought people's attention to this issue Go right. and look through all of your drugs and, and, and see, see how they were approved. And go imagine doing the same amount of research onto every drug that a person's on the same way that you've heard about the COVID vaccine. And right. I, I can assure you, you will not, it will not bring you confidence for many of them, especially anything that's of the last 20 years and proved in the last 20 years. 
No, and I think that's that really. Can, I'm cognizant of the time here, Drew. I we I think that this yeah, brings me full I, circle to the thing that I really wanted to focus on, which is that as bad as the in these COVID vaccines, in my estimation, are horrific. They should have been pulled from the market. I believe um, immediately they should never have gone to market. But the this problem far far supersedes. It goes beyond what happened during COVID. Uh, as you're pointing out, uh, Dr. Freeman, this is something that has been longstanding, decades in the making. Uh, it's one of the things that Bobby Kennedy Jr., regardless of it, how you agree with him on other things, uh, climate or otherwise, he has absolutely made a commitment to get to the bottom of this, this regulatory capture, the fact that we have uh, pharmaceutical companies in bed with our agencies whose job it is to protect the safety and security um, of the American people, I think is, is a problem. Our scientific journals have been captured. You can't rely on anything you read in the what I what I thought were the storied medical journals and on and on. So I think we are exposing a way bigger problem here that's going to need to be uh, addressed. I, I remember I Bobby's add- uh, call was is when he gets as soon as he gets to office, where to get into office would be to call the majors publishers in and to threaten them with a RICO action if they don't get mm-hmm. their their act straight. Joe, mm-hmm. you're going to say something? That's- yeah, as before, what I was talking about, our majority of our population being irrationally confident in their viewpoints. I, I, at the other hand, I believe there's hope in that uh, because there's a small, there's a minority of this population that is rationally uncertain. And they are the counterpart to the irrationally confident. All three of you are in that rationally uncertain group. And you all have probably slightly different opinions. And that's totally okay. Mm-hmm. That's normal. Mm-hmm. And when things are uncertain, we're going to come to slightly different places in what we right. think is probably true. But the problem is it's uncomfortable for most people to be uncertain, but people have to choose. Do you want to be rationally uncertain or do you want to be irrational? Because if you wanna be confident that you know what's going on, you then have to also, you're choosing to be irrational. And we need more population in this rationally uncertain group so that we can possibly change this system to make it work for us, to protect us the way that it's supposed to. Our, our, these agencies were built to protect us and, and they should, and they can. We have the way, we have the means, we know how to do yeah. it. And I, we I, can do it. I, I want to add something in. I want to add something very important in here that was taken away by COVID. And that is the individual's practitioner's clinical judgment. Joe, I don't know about you, but I see lots of COVID, lots of COVID. And it gives me a certain clinical sense of what's going on. By the way, I'm seeing the new variant come on board and it's quite different than the previous infections. Uh, And it has remarkably uh, responsive to Paxlovid, strangely. Uh, But I don't use it because it's so mild. It only lasts a day, maybe three days and can be kind of intense. And when it is, I use the Paxlovid. But, But it's a totally different syndrome I'm seeing. That is informing me. That's helping me make decisions about vaccines or further vaccine therapy or treatment. These the the individual practitioner's clinical judgment is a feature of our system that has is being systematically taken away by physician extenders, by centralization of decision making, and this is a major piece of our problem that doesn't even come into this conversation or the data you've you've brought in. I just wonder if you have a comment about that. 
Yeah, I, I also have, I personally haven't hospitalized a patient with classical COVID-19 syndrome since February 2022. So it's it's been about a year and a half, maybe maybe a bit longer. Is that, yeah, since Omicron essentially yeah. came into effect, I haven't hospitalized a single patient. So I, I, I've hospitalized lots of patients with COVID, you know, they had schizophrenia maybe with a yep. psychosis episode yep. or they were a guy who missed, di- missed dialysis. Yep. And there was like, oh, do you have a yep. cough? Yeah, I do now that you say it. But <laughs> this syndrome changed dramatically right. from what it was before. And, and it's and and, and have a way it's changing again. It's, it's changing again. And was that natural immunity? Was that natural immunity plus vaccine? Was it vaccine? Was it vaccine alone? I, we don't have any way of parsing these things out or less pathogenic organism, period. You know, it could have been just less, less pathogenicity, period. It but we can't to. parse these no. things out because they're not doing the studies. Yes, you no, know, we, we know for sure, certain, yes, but the, the but no, the, the thing changed in 20, the, the solid change from when it went to Omicron. Right. It can't right. be that everyone just was infected. It's no, there's something, it stopped being a problem. The, the disease changed dramatically to, to go to zero <laughs> hospitalizations. Anecdotally. Yeah, remark- yeah, remarkably, it did exactly what every other virus has done from the beginning of time as it mutated. It became more transmissible, more contagious, and at the less time, less lethal, less which, severe. It is the nat- it, it would be reportable. It would be reportable for a virus to mutate uh, in the other direction. I'm not saying it's never it happened in weird. the history of the universe, but it would be reportable. It would it would, a, it, it would a, be a weird, but virus. based on those FOIA documents we saw yesterday, maybe this isn't something from nature. <laughs> just just saying. Well, well, just no, saying. Yeah. Well, no, let, I would tell you. I would, <laughs> yeah. No, no. If it's not I, from nature, we would know how, how what it would do. Well, well right. interestingly, That's and right. I have said this from the beginning, because this was not from nature, let's be clear. It was not. This was a lab-created virus. But fortunately, no, 100%. You heard it here first. Uh, no, 100%. But I will tell you. Um, I agree. The good news, the good news is, in all seriousness, is that despite the fact that this was a lab-created virus, it mutated in ways that were exactly based on what a a naturally occurring virus would do, which was great because had this started to mutate differently, if they'd found out some way to to embed components in it, to splice pieces in that made it uh, mutate differently than that, meaning those two things becoming more contagious, but at the yeah. less time, less severe, we would have been in a heap of trouble yeah. as as uh, as a species. Yeah. Fortunately, that's not what happened, despite uh, the fact that it was lab created. We, you, everyone's been very, very uh, uh, generous with their time. We are way, way over. But Joe, I'm going to ask for one more thing. We really haven't highlighted the guy. The FDA, how they how they decide oh. if something is a Vioxx a Vioxx related event or not, a vaccine related event or not. Do the, do you have that on tape where he goes, "Hey, we got a guy named John." John goes out and decides. John the plumber. John the plumber goes out and says, Bob. "Is it a vaccine <laughs> reaction?" <laughs> yeah, let me see if we got this here for you. Um, that that him stating that exactly in those sense, he 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 gets to it over and over, but um. Using random That was the most, uh, to me, of, of today's been a lot of astonishment, but that was the most astonishing thing from our last conversation. I want to put that out, finish with that. That's our, that's our sort of uh, return to tonic they got the, yeah. with a, a, they got a flurry. This, du- this dude, this dude, Bob, who, you know, did you <laughs> I got it here, I think. Very likely to have occurred to them in any case. 
then that event is less likely to be related to the investigational product. So this is this was we played this I'm earlier not here. Sure, what you mean by that? And again, the using the randomization to do hypothesis testing to look for a causal relationship between the investigational product and placebo. Again, it's typically not done for a variety of reasons, one of which is the multiplicity concern, because we may have a case where there's no difference in total numbers of AEs, but a substantial difference in a specific SSD, which, which is causal. And you can't go around testing every PT, every SSD, and have believable hypothesis test results from that. Uh, yeah. I, I appreciate that. I think we're, we're not looking at so much as hypothesis testing, but even just the notion that given you have a randomized trial, um, you can start with, with very crude level looking at all cause and looking at AESIs. My impression is that was, that's what the AESI list was indeed created for, is, is to have a, a better sort of a focused look at um, indeed hypotheses about what we might see. I think the AESI list, uh, the Brighton list, I, I believe it was intended for um, primarily post-market surveillance, no, but I, I not true. could be wrong about that. You are. The critical review memos. Um, so um, I'm sorry, this, this, this whole recording is a lot of boring talk between people who like statistics a lot. And uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it, the, the, in, the content of it is, it is explained with going into each individual case and 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 looking at all these individual things. It's I, I will I, I get you know next time I come on here I will exactly identify these things because it's just it's so boring to to, to replay that I, okay. I feel bad. That will be that's a it. date. That's a date. You you okay. have you have a you have a date with us. A date to return and play some some highlights. <laughs> Uh, but uh, I thank you both for spending time with us today. You've been very generous and been very insightful. A lot of interesting things have come up. The, and and uh, you know what we're supposed to do is raise raise questions, raise issues, and I think that's a lot of what. Uh, and and then focus on weaknesses in the process, and that's what we're supposed to do. It's not like we're doing something uh, nefarious by doing this. That, that that is our job and has always been our job. Kelly, you want to wrap up too? Yeah, just I would say that we have got to return critical thinking to medicine and certainly to these regulatory agencies. Uh, it is their job, as I said, to protect uh, the American people, not come up with every which way from Sunday to explain away things. It's as if uh, this is sort of a Saturday Night Live skit if it uh, weren't so tragic. These guys, uh, I, I've met guys at the Jiffy Lube who have better critical thinking <laughs> skills than these folks in the uh, FDA uh, boardroom. So thank you for sharing that, Jess. It's always great to see you. Love your insights on all of this uh, and your your scientific detail here. So thanks to both of you for being here. Sorry for taking up so much of your uh, of your time today, but I think this was a great conversation. Agreed. Pleasure. We'll see you back. Mechanics and, know uh, everything. Thank. <laughs> yeah, they do. They and, do. And people and people don't question them the way they question us. Okay, yeah, guys, more, we're, we'll yeah. wrap more, it up with that. Is, more bad is bad is, is usually yeah. yeah. That's, <laughs> that's pretty clear. That's, that's, it's easy to understand. Right. Concept. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. All right. Thank we'll be back you. on uh, two. 
Tuesday, I think. Uh, uh, bye, Jessica. And uh, Kelly, are you with us on Tuesday next week? Uh, we're out tomorrow. I am not. I'm back. I'm back. On. Not, yes, we're I, back yes. On I, no, I'm back. I'm solo on it? Tuesday with Brian Hooker, who. Oh, wrote, that's what it is. Um, yes, yeah, that's right. Yeah, Brian Hooker, who co-authored a book with Bobby Kennedy Jr. Uh, about the vaccines. Um, so I am doing a one-on-one -on -one with him on Tuesday, the twelfth, and then we've got my uh, right. my pal John Phillips. With I think you're back on Wednesday with John Phillips. Um, yep. Uh, we're going to be talking on Wednesday, and then we've got Pierre Corey Perfect. coming back the following week. Great. Uh, we'll see you all with Kelly on Tuesday and me and Kelly on Wednesday. We'll see you on Tuesday. Thank you for joining us. Thanks. Ask Dr. Drew is produced by Caleb Nation and Susan Pinsky. As a reminder, the discussions here are not a substitute for medical care, diagnosis, or treatment. This show is intended for educational and informational purposes only. I am a licensed physician, but I am not a replacement for your personal doctor and I am not practicing medicine here. Always remember that our understanding of medicine and science is constantly evolving. Though my opinion is based on the information that is available to me today, some of the contents of this show could be outdated in the future. Be sure to check with trusted resources in case any of the information has been updated since this was published. If you or someone you know is in immediate danger, don't call me, call 911. If you're feeling hopeless or suicidal, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. You can find more of my recommended organizations and helpful resources at drdrew.com help.